You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 30. To go through all of that and make your way home again only to find such chaos in the world. I can only imagine chaos is a ladder. Whatever is in accordance with what happened in the past in Martin's fictional world, he's, he's going to try to do the opposite. If someone uses the machine learning approach to bet on who's going to live and who's going to die in the 2019 season of Game of Thrones, I think they will. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to the Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. All right, welcome everyone. Welcome. Hope you are enjoying the long weekend. It's uh, Labor Day weekend for those of you in the United States. That's about 70% of my audience. I don't know. I just made up that number. Um, if I take probabilities seriously, I probably shouldn't make up those ratios, but here I am making up ratios. Uh, okay, so today, today is a fun day. We're going to talk about machine learning applied to HBO's fantasy series, Game of Thrones. There's also the books from the author George R.R. R. Martin. Um, and there's an article about how they applied machine learning to that. Um, I know that some of you are probably jumping up already. Hey, hey, Max, hey, machine learning doesn't work for that. Yeah, I know what you're going to say, but we can break it down a little bit and talk about what can and cannot be said here. And plus, all of the Game of Thrones fans out there are like dying right now, waiting for the next season to come up. It's like two years between seasons. That's, that's criminal. It just it builds up the expectations way too high. Maybe they're waiting for all their machine learning models to come in and tell them what to write. I don't know. So I should also say before we begin, uh, minor spoilers. But uh, if you're not caught up at this point, you know I don't know what to tell you. But if you, if you care about that, you might want to skip over uh, certain certain parts. All right. So I'm going to start by uh, talking about a little bit of background. Um, uh, I want to talk about uh, one of the most compelling things about machine learning, which is why I study the field to begin with. And that is that it can be said that machine learning is an alternative to writing code. It's actually letting the computer itself decide for itself what code to write. And that's, that's really compelling because, uh, you know, code automates all sorts of all sorts of processes in in life and if you can automate the writing of code well that's just one layer up that's just uh, an extra layer of superpowers that that goes on top of the you know information age gain so now for anyone who's ever done machine learning you might say you know hey that doesn't sound exactly right I, I know what you're you're thinking because when I run a machine learning algorithm, like I don't see any Java, I don't see any Python, I don't see any Scala. You know, I don't actually. It's not like the uh, the algorithm is writing code in the way that we think about code. So, what does teaching the computer to write the code really mean? Uh, we actually have automated systems for writing code. They're called compilers and code generators, uh, but those are more deterministic. Those typically take code written in one language, closer to what 
the human programmers wrote, and then it turns that into another language, say, you know, assembly or machine code or byte code, which is what the computer actually executes. So that's not what I mean when I say that the computer is writing its own program, because those compilers are more or less deterministic. They're breaking down instructions into a more basic form. Um, it's a tough problem, certainly. I think uh, as an undergrad, when I was an undergrad at Yale, the course I took in compilers was probably the toughest computer science course um, that, that, that I took. Uh, it was, we, we had to write our own compiler. Not so easy. Um, but that's not what machine learning does. So machine learning actually builds a model that affects the program logic. So a compiler keeps the same logic, translates it from one language to another, keeps the logic. Machine learning figures out what the logic should be in the first place, and it le learns from examples. So in other words, it figures out how to solve a given problem. And different algorithms will produce different models, and they'll produce different results. So when I talked to, uh, when I spoke with Christian Hubs back in episode 24, we talked about reinforcement learning and computers that play chess and Go. If you want to talk about uh, supervised learning, probably the most common and the one that I have the most hands-on familiarity with, that could be taking photos and learning how to label them with captions. Um, in the case of my work at Foursquare, it's taking uh, Foursquare tips and turning them into a, into a like or a dislike. Um, you know, the photo captioning is kind of fun. You know, you can see some of these Google examples where you see a photo of a of a dog jumping in a field, and then it captions it: a dog jumping in a field. You know, or this is a hot dog. This is not a hot dog, which uh, is the the image recognition example in Silicon Valley. But it actually, I think we at Foursquare did it first. We have a hot dog detector. Um, so it's like this. You know, nobody wants to write out the logic for that. Nobody wants to write out a logic for uh, a computer program that plays chess. People have tried. You know, you start with, okay, let me see if, you know, if the king is here and the queen is there and your pieces are arranged like so, then you should make this move and then just list them all out. Uh, that gets tedious. Um, that's sort of early attempts at AI. And not only is that tedious, but it doesn't work so well for these types of problems. There are actually certain problems where um, that kind of thing does work, where there's like a deterministic answer, there's an algorithm that gets you there perfectly, and those you do want to write out, and, th and those are kind of nice looking. But a lot of these problems are not. Um, you know, humans writing code for these problems, will, for chess, for example, um, will only produce so-so chess players. They'll produce terrible translators, you know, if you just have a bunch of linguists do it. And for image recognition, well, you know, we wouldn't even know where to begin for image recognition. I mean, how do you create the rules that turn a matrix of pixels into a list of words? You know, I mean, if the top right pixel is a certain shade of red, then, oh my God, it'll never work. So, okay, so the machine learning model is the code. But does it read like code? Oh, no, 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 it does not. Uh, usually, the model reads like a mess. It's human unreadable code, much like those executable files that are compiled down, or probably a better example is those zip files that we're familiar with. You know, if you open them in your text editor, you, you know, 
you know, when you take a, a file, a group of files, and you, you convert them to zip, you compress them, and then you accidentally open, up the, open them up in a text editor. Have you ever done that? And you kind of get this random jumble of characters, and y- y- you, you pull it up, and you're like, oh, I'm just not going to touch that. I used to see it a lot more, you know, back in the day with... with um, you see it a lot more when you work on, on terminals, on command lines, um, not so much in the, on the, you know, on the, on the user interfaces these days, they, they do a pretty good job of hiding it. But if you work with files, if you're, if you're a software engineer, if you're a programmer, you'll see that all the time. Um, and actually, if I wrote a script that uh, outputs a bunch of random characters and showed you a zip file, they'd, they'd probably look about the same to you, uh, even though one has very special meaning and the other really does not. So particularly if you're building like a neural net or convolutional net or PCA. I shouldn't like just list these off to prove how smart I am. What am I trying to prove here? I'm not going to get into all that right now. It's just tough to interpret um, what you built just by looking at it. I also shouldn't rattle those off because <laughs> I don't, <laughs> that I, I'm sort of uh, implicitly signaling that I know everything about those things, which I don't. So anyway, although, you know, even though, if you look at these models, it's kind of a mess. The, the same with like the zip file. You know, there are ways to extract information about what you want when you see these models. Um, but it's kind of easier if you have a model that's easy to interpret straight away. And so there are two models that come to my mind that are really easy to interpret. Uh, the first is logistic regression. And I'll include linear regression that. Linear models in general, where essentially the code is a bunch of scores. Uh, it's a bunch of numbers. So it's, it's essentially it's trying to learn data, not code. Uh, but today I'm, but data is code, like I say. So uh, today I'm going to talk about the other one. About, and this is the one machine learning model that actually looks like code. There's one model when I say the machine generates code, the machine generated the logic, you look at the result and you say, you know, aha, I can see it. And that model is a decision tree. Yes, decision tree. Because the decision tree model looks like something we all, or like, you know, most adults and students have seen, and that's like a flow chart. I kind of liken it to a game of 20 questions. Um, actually, the best way to see that is to download the Akinator app. I don't know if anyone has seen that. This app is like 10 years old. Um, so it's not too hard of an algorithm. Uh, you could, the Akinator app is a, is a simple iPhone or Android app. You can download it, and it tries to guess your character through a series of questions. So, for example, I tried one here. Uh, it first asked, is your character real? No. Does your character wear shoes? No. Does your character stand on two legs? No. Male? Yes. Genie? Yes. Disney movie? Yes. Grant wishes? Yes. And voila, it knows that um, in seven questions, it knows that it's the the genie from Aladdin. Um, Now, I'm not exactly sure what they're trying to maximize here, what they're trying to go for here. It might be that they're trying to minimize the number of questions it asks. Uh, Sometimes you could make it pick wrong or uh, sometimes, you know, it takes like a hundred questions. This is kind of a straightforward one as popular character. But sometimes if you pick like an obscure historical figure from Roman times, you know, it'll take like a hundred questions and it'll get a few wrong answers along the way. Um, so I tried one character that's uh, Gendry from Game of Thrones, and it took about 20 guesses 
for it to get Gendry from Game of Thrones. He's a big character, but probably a little more minor than some of the other well-known ones. Uh, maybe like a mid-tier character, but we'll talk about this soon. I think he'll be much bigger next season. Anyway, that's the decision tree. You've probably encountered them online when they say things, you know, well, more flowcharts, you know, which Harry Potter house would you be sorted into? But those probably aren't even decision trees. They're just meant to look like decision trees. They're probably just a fixed set of questions, and then they add up some scores, and it probably wasn't even statistically learned. It was just, you know, um, it was just handwritten and doesn't have much meaning. But sometimes, sometimes those are data-driven. They could be fun. Um, but... So most of the time when you're building these decision trees, you're not trying to pick a character. Sometimes you are. Sometimes you're trying to find a yes-no. So, uh, for example, this could be used in advertising when you ask the question, is it worth showing someone your ad at a particular time? Well, you could make those rules yourself, and you, you actually can. You can if, you, if you put out an ad on Facebook, you can choose, I want to show it to these people. Um, but you can imagine people do this as well. If you have some data on who responds well to an ad, then you could automate the building of a tree that asks a bunch of questions about the person and the context they find themselves in. And at the end of it, you get a yes-no response on whether they should be shown that ad. Um, a little bit of background on how these trees are built. So it's supervised learning, so it requires training data. So for example, if you're trying to see you know, who clicks on your ad, you'll have a bunch of data about uh, when you showed the ad in the past and who clicked on it and who didn't click on it. And then you try to make a tree that best predicts what you're trying to learn um, and how it finds that tree. Well, there's a specific algorithm to it. Like anything in machine learning, you can always try a bunch of random ones and pick the best one. Uh, but trees are nice because one thing you can do is, okay, I want to pick the first question. What's the best first question I can ask to, um, so that after asking that first question, I'm in the best possible position to make a prediction? And then after you've determined that, you have you know, two sides, a yes or no to that question, and then each side is kind of a sub-problem where, okay, what's the next best question that I can ask, and so on and so forth. Um, and then, of course, with this, and as we'll see in a second, when this is actually done in, um, you know, um, in a production environment, when when this is done, when when you want to build a big deal algorithm, you know, put on your big boy pants, then you usually decision tree is usually like a small building block in a much bigger algorithm, whether it's like a random forest algorithm or gradient boosted trees. It's like it's a forest. It's you build a whole lot of trees and see what happens. So. Uh, that's kind of how that works. I'm not here to make it so that you're experts in actually building one, but what I do hope to give you is kind of an intuition for how they work. Um, so this article, which I was shown recently, this is from Data Robot Blog. Uh, that's a company that bu builds machine learning software. Uh, they built a model to predict which characters will be killed off in the next book of Game of Thrones. The, the article um, and the model was written by um, data robot, data scientist Taylor Larkin, and uh, it's based off of a Kaggle competition, 
where I'm not really sure what the point is of the cattle competition, whether you're actually trying to predict character deaths or whether you're just trying to do something interesting with the Game of Thrones data set, but it has a data set of a bunch of character deaths and battles in Game of Thrones, and it threw it out there and says, who can do something interesting with this data? So this is kind of an interesting, a really fun way of thinking about it. The model they built is based off of a decision tree. It's actually one of the, those more, much more complex models built with many, many trees. I think it would have been actually a lot more fun in this case if the output of the model that they gave was a single de decision tree, because then you could actually you know, put that in your blog post and you can kind of follow it for any of the characters that you know about to see you know, whether they'll live or die. So for example, the biggest predictor that they calculated is whether you've had dead relatives. That means that you yourself are more likely to die. Um, although just from watching it, it almost seems like the, the story writing is actually the opposite of that, where some relatives get killed off and then the remaining ones have kind of a longer, more involved story of how they deal with that. So that's sort of what I would have thought, but who am I to argue with the data? Uh, gender, age, and culture are also used into this. Oh my God, this is exactly what's used in predicting responses to online advertisements. So the only thing that'll make it complete is if there's a feature for whether or not you've bought the product in the past, um, or in the case of Game of Thrones, has this character been killed in the past? That should have been a feature. Uh, interestingly, that would make total sense for a Game of Thrones decision tree. Has this character been killed off in the past? Because there are multiple characters for, uh, for which that is true, and yet they are still alive. Um, and then, of course, the character's house or family is a feature. You know, is this character a Stark? Are they a Lannister? Um, as Aaron pointed out to me in the email, there's actually going to be a, uh, that's actually going to be highly correlated uh, with whether you have a dead relative. So in fact, people in the same house should have the same number of dead relatives. So it might not be introducing as much new information as we think. Now, I mentioned this at the beginning of the show, but some of you might be surprised by what I'm about to say because I'm such a big believer in machine learning and uh, data-based uh, approaches. Um, if someone uses the machine learning approach to bet on who's going to live and who's going to die in the 2019 season of Game of Thrones, I think they will lose. Yeah, I predict they'll lose, or at least they're taking a big risk. Maybe they have even odds, but there's even a case that, you know, a case to be made that they have less than even odds. Um, not only is this an outlier problem, the author can decide to kill off whoever he wants, there's also the issue of unexpectedness. See, there's this game that George R. R. Martin and I assume the HBO writers of Game of Thrones are playing with us. It's Game of Thrones, well, pun, uh, in that they value, you know, for the purpose of storytelling, twists and turns that the reader wouldn't expect. Now, I don't suggest that George R. R. Martin has a data-defined, you know, expectedness score for every character that he's calculated out. But being the author of the series and being a very good writer. I figure that he would have a really good intuition for who's expected to die and who's expected to survive. And then he'll try to break those expectations. 
So this is actually alluded to in this series I like, uh, this comedy series online on YouTube I like. It's called Epic Rat Battles of History. Uh, <laughs> these things are hilarious. Uh, unfortunately, they stopped making them, so that kind of sucks. But there's a, there's a lot of them out there. And they have these rap battles between different historical figures, usually, or sometimes just celebrities. And in this case, they did a rap battle between Game of Thrones author George R.R. R. Martin and the Lord of the Rings arc author uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. I guess that's the formula, formula for fantasy, blank of blank by blank R.R. Blank. Anyway, uh, one of the lines in this rap battle really stands out from the guy playing George R.R. R. Martin. He says, my readers fall in love with every character I've written, then I kill them, and they're like, no, he didn't. All your bad guys die and your good guys survive. You can tell what's going to happen by page and age five. And then later on in the rap battle, you have this retort from the guy playing J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, we all know the world is full of chance and anarchy. So yes, it's true to life for characters to die randomly, but newsflash, the genre is called fantasy. It's meant to be unrealistic, you myopic manatee. So let's actually have a listen. My readers fall in love with every character I've written, then I kill them. Nah. And they're like, oh, All your bad guys die, and your good guys survive. We can tell what's gonna happen. My page and age viral. And here's the Tolkien part. Oh, we all know the world is full of chance and anarchy. So yes, it's true to life for characters that die randomly. A newsflash, the genre's called fantasy. It's meant to be unrealistic, you myopic manatee. This suggests that whatever the algorithm says to do, whatever is in accordance with what happened in the past in Martin's fictional world, he's, he's going to try to do the opposite. So sometimes we call this an adversarial actor. This is someone who is trying to do the opposite of what you predict. And a lot of my favorite problems are, in fact, adversarial. You know, take rock, rock paper, scissors, the game. Whatever I expect the other person to do, it's in their interest to do something else. So in many ways, the stock market is adversarial. If a movement is too easy predict, to predict, then uh, people will trade on that expected movement. It'll be priced into the market sooner and sooner until it becomes hard to predict. And many of the problems we talked about on this show are adversarial uh, to a certain degree. So spam filtering, people want to get, spammers want to get around the spam filters. Uh, censored speech. People get around that by changing their language while still conveying the meaning to the people they want to reach on, on that platform. So we cover this in episode 10 on the Mark Zuckerberg hearings. They think they can solve hate speech in five to 10 years. Uh, they won't. Well, I guess they have 9.8 years left. Um, now, uh, think about it in your own life. Well, let's say, this is kind of a funny example, but uh, imagine that I worked with you and every day I noted what color shirt you're wearing. I'm kind of annoying that way. And I wrote an algorithm saying what color your shirt was going to be on that day. And every day you come in, I've already, um, you know, I already put a post-it note on your desk saying what color shirt you are, you have, and I'm usually right. And it gets pretty annoying. So... You get your hands on my algorithm, and now you wake up and you know what shirt color I'm expecting. Wouldn't you be tempted to choose a different color than the one the algorithm said? You know, if I said 
here's an algorithm that will predict what you're going to do, and then you had access to that, wouldn't you be tempted to do something else? And so, hey, maybe that's, maybe that's a good idea for some areas in life. You know, not all. You could be making most of your decisions for a good reason, but in some areas where you want to be more unexpected and you want to be more spontaneous, you might want to look at what you usually do, write a model to predict it, and then do something different or have the model tell you what the least likely thing to do is. I can only imagine chaos is a ladder. In the Game of Thrones article, there's actually a really uh, great illustration of this. So this is a little bit of a spoiler, so uh, skip this part if you, if you care about that. But uh, the Game of Thrones TV series is ahead of the books. So the books, the books don't include some of the stuff that happened in the last couple of seasons in the TV show. So according to the model, which is based off the books, the safest house to be in is the Tyrells. Uh, the Tyrells are a wealthy house that, at the beginning, uh, they didn't get into a lot of fights. Uh, they're big-time social climbers, and um, but they're much less you know, risk-takers than, say, the, the Lannisters or the Baratheons. So they're fine for the first few seasons. And in the books, they're fine so far, apparently. I, I haven't read the books yet. Maybe, maybe that's changed. So the model says that if you live in House Tyrell, you're safe. Well... Guess what? You're not. Almost all of them got wiped out in the last couple of seasons in Game of Thrones. Horrific deaths. So the writers, it's, it's almost as if the writers ran this model and it told them, you know, what to do or what they're expected to do. And they just did the exact opposite. And so you have this black swan event um, towards the people who are who are acting in a certain way or just like Nassim Taleb's, you know, Turkey, where every day of its life it gets better and better until Thanksgiving you know, so go the Tyrells. That's in episode 27, Fat Tales. Now, I have another way of looking at it, and this is the information theory way of looking at it. I know I'm talking a lot about previous episodes today, but this is a callback to my episode in information theory. That's episode 19, I believe. We asked, what, what is information content? If you get a piece of information that is something that you already know, it's actually not giving you any real information. You're just receiving bits. Hey, you already know I'm going to send you uh, a, a signal of one, and you got a one. So you, didn't, you already knew that. You didn't get any new information. So if it's something that surprises you, it's something that you thought is almost impossible, then you kind of have to rethink your model of the world. That's high information content. So maybe Game of Thrones wants to deliver high information content with each of the deaths in the series. So I ran this by Aaron, and here's what he said. He said uh, in an email, I like that. It's about introducing new information about the world with each death. The question is, what kind of information? A better understanding of the complex mechanisms that interact to drive global and local forces, or a reminder that the universe is random and meaningless and in ways that often seem cruel. It could go either way. So that's what he sent me back. So yeah, it's an interesting question. Uh, if there are no rules to the Game of Thrones universe, that's maximum entropy, maximum information, then it's like watching static on TV. High information content because you can't predict you know, when a given pixel is going to turn a certain color when you're watching static, but it's not too interesting. You know, no individual pixel conveys very much information on its own. So this is the opposite to a story 
that seems to have a regularity and then sometimes breaking that regularity. So the story has often less, you know, quote, information as a whole, but that information is distributed in certain shocking events uh, and it makes the story much more interesting. So this is a topic that I actually want to talk more about, how actually having no information and having maximal information, like a blank screen versus a, a screen of static, are essentially equally worthless. So I, I think we're going to, that's a, a duality of information. I think we're going to talk about that in a future episode. Uh, personally, I think that there are rules to the Game of Thrones universe, but they are complex and they're not universally applied. And they have a lot of exceptions, which is what makes for a rich story. So if machine learning is not a good use case in making predictions in Game of Thrones, uh, what are these models good for? You know, do we just throw them out? Well, not quite. Uh, first of all, they're really good to illustrate how this technology works and how these statistical models work. So that's what we did in the show today. That's what the blog post did. And hopefully this will be a good data set to use to learn how to build this stuff. Um, you can use it to create online quizzes. That's always fun. Would you live or die as a Game of Thrones character? I think that the ones you know based on real data are the most fun, whereas a lot of those quizzes are just are just kind of made up. And so I I would take the quiz much more seriously if it were if it were based on real data. Um, it can be used, like I said, uh, by the authors to see how unexpected their decisions are. Uh, but I think that this can actually be used for literary analysis and recommendations. So the fact that a decision tree is so interpretable, uh, or a logistic regression, for example, you can use this to analyze these worlds that are created by authors after the fact. And then if you want to write fan fiction, you can actually try to keep within the same rules. So uh, for example, in the epic rap battle clips, they suggest that Lord of the Rings world is more predictable than the Game of Thrones world. Well, now you can quantify that. You can see how well the algorithms do at any given point to predict the next plot, plot point and to see, you know, I could imagine uh, any given story being given a, an expectedness score. Um, you can have a story with a high expectedness score and a story with a low expectedness score and it could be considered, you know, different, uh, different styles of writing, different styles of fiction. I think that in the somewhat distant future, you'll have natural language understanding systems out there that'll be uh, able to automatically gather data and plot points of these books just by reading them. Um, because this one uh, in the Kaggle competition, actually, the, the data set on Game of Thrones, that was kind of written out by hand. Um, but, and so that could only be done through, you know, uh, on, only be done for a few stories because we don't have the resources to do every single story. Um, and, and write it out like this. Oh, that has to be automated. Uh, I guess it could be, I, I guess you can like farm it out to people, but it, that would be just way too expensive. I don't think anyone would do it. So it would have to be automated. Um, these natural language understanding systems will analyze our stories. Um, and each story can be given like, you know, a, a score for how expectedness it is, how, how expected it is, or how the total information content in the plot points. Um, and I'm sure this can be done now to an extent with our current natural language processing methods. Uh, see episode 23 on our current natural language processing methods. I'm on a roll with all of the uh, previous episode references today. So yeah, we can actually analyze the information 
content of these stories. Maybe we can automatically draw comparisons between characters, like who's the hero, who's the, you know, who's the loyal friend, all that. And um, we can see situations from one story uh, universe to another and, and draw comparisons. So you could actually have the machine be the, be the literary... Uh, the literary analysis in the future will uh, be helped with um, automated methods because there's just so much data. I also think the historians of the future will have to go through, you know, all of our writings and um, and and search it, but also uh, have some kind of automated way to analyze it. And actually, using com- computations in literary analysis is nothing radical. Like just just pure comp- computation on. You know, how many words is it? Which words are more common, which are less? That's that's pretty common. So towards the beginning of the show, I mentioned to the character uh, Gendry, it turns out that he was the least likely to die. Now, he's a well-liked character, so hopefully that's right. We'll see what happens. And to all these characters, if they go the expected route, or unfortunately for Gendry, the unexpected route. Uh, So we only have to wait like a year and a half or something like that. That's ridiculous. All right. That's it for today. Next week, hopefully, we'll be talking about causality. Um, if uh, you know, if I could work out the timing with my guests, I'm sure you heard that correlation doesn't mean causation. Everyone's heard that. But nobody ever you know, internalizes this because it's not obvious. It's a deep, deep rabbit hole. I see it all the time when people are making arguments online. Um, it, it always uses the correlate. It's always an argument through correlation. So how do you conclude that something actually causes something else or that if I take an action, I can cause something else to be more likely to happen? Very interesting problem, very well worth talking about for every area of your life. And we'll look at some studies in education. And then I think I'll have uh, Aaron back on at some point to interview me about my upcoming sabbatical from Foursquare and all the projects that I plan and what I have planned for this podcast. So um, I'll help him write the questions. You know know what? I'll just let him surprise me with the questions. So that'll be a lot of fun. All right. Have a great weekend, everyone. That's the show. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you want to keep up, remember to follow The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at MaxClock. Have a great week. Feel the power. She said, I don't care what you say. You're going to see me shine. I'm close From a dude who says a raven to say hi to his toes You fat jokes are worse than your pipe smoke My show's the hottest thing on HBO C.S. Lewis and I were just discussing How you and Jon Snow Both know nothing Because the backstory on my box office is brilliant Got my children making millions off my silver brilliance